This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 609, and the quote of the day is, it's never too late to learn. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 609. And first of all, I want to thank everyone for the comments and the emails and things like that about the Near Z uh, episode that was just released last week, episode 608. If you haven't checked that out, you should dig into that. It was a really special one for me, but also there's a ton of nuggets in there, especially if you're recording, you want to record, you're, uh, you're interested in learning more about recording, not necessarily the technical stuff, but approaches and things like that. Check out that, that episode with Nier. It's, it's definitely a great one. Like I said, I got a lot of feedback about it. So check that out. And now we got Mr. J Mumford and this is an inspiring story to say the least. Jay started playing drums at a very late age, not a very late age, but in his thirties, he started playing drums and he excelled quickly, very quickly. And he talks about how he did that. And he went on to start his own band called the do rights. He hosted, actually hosted a, a drumming podcast on the Red Bull network for a while and has played with a slew of great artists over the, over the years. And again, a short career and and has done a lot of things in that short amount of time but prior to this he was in the rap game and he got into producing and making beats and stuff like that so a truly inspiring story for some of you who may be a little bit further down the road in terms of age so you don't have to start when you're two or when you're 10 or when you're 15 it's never too late and this is a story that proves that and more. So let's get into it with my man, Mr. Jay Mumford. Jay, welcome to the podcast, my man. Nick, happy to be here. Thank you. Of course. We uh, doing what I got to do, surviving. <laughs> yeah. So where you're in this? You're in New York, right? Yeah, I'm in Queens. You guys just I I don't know why, but. Some for some reason, I always talk about the weather in the beginning of a lot of these episodes, and I have no idea why. But you guys just got like two feet of snow, didn't you? Oh, we got dumped on eighteen yeah. inches. Um, you know, I shoveled out Tuesday, and then that, the last day or so, I just said I'm gonna let nature melt some of this stuff before I even attempt to get the car out. So today, there I had to, sho- had to shovel behind the wheels so I could move it, and I actually, <laughs> I actually ordered a rock and sock drum throne last week, and me thinking. Because they, they, UPS got a, got a notification, we're going to deliver it Saturday. I'm like, I don't know UPS deliver, or to deliver on a Saturday. So I was like, I wasn't going to be home, and it was for signature. I was like, ah, I'll do it. I'll just pick it up Monday because I live near mm-hmm. UPS. Man, we get that 18 inches, <laughs> and I'm sitting here. My throne is beat. Like when I'm doing a lot of recording, and every recording you hear, it's squeaking. It sounds like a, <laughs> it sounds like an old Speed King on steroids. And every time I shift in the chair, it's like, it sounds like a wildebeest getting eaten alive by hyenas. Like, <laughs> and I've been doing a lot of studio work at home, and I'm like, man, I want to get my my new throne, but I can't get out of my driveway. <laughs> so today I'll be able to resume recording with a nice new quiet throne. There you go. There you go. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I want to. I want to rewind a little bit and. 
start for before you started playing drums? Because one, you started playing drums at, a, at an early age, but far before that, you were in you were in the hip hop game as a rapper, as a as an MC. How did that start for you? Well, I was a producer and MC. I was primarily a producer, but I did rap too. Uh, it started as a bass player when I was in grade school. We're talking the late eighties. Mm-hmm. I was I was an only child, and my parents split when I was six. So the records that my, you know were in the house, or the rec- my dad would take me to see my grandparents on the weekend. Whatever whatever records were in the basement here at the house, that was right. my only exposure to music. I didn't like when I would go to school. Kids were either in hip hop. Kids were in the Run DMC and stuff, and everybody else was into U two, Tears for Fears, George Michael. So. I wasn't exposed to that. I, this is 1987. I'm 10 years old and I'm listening to Bohannon, Cool in the Gang, mm-hmm. Funkadelic, Ohio Players. And this is my parents' music, but I don't know nothing. I'm just, my whole musical taste is being shaped by whatever records my parents had. And they're older than me. And um, I used to look at the back of the album jackets to see these guys with the big froze and the crazy space suits. And I'd be like, that's what I want to be. So. Right. <laughs> I became a bass player and uh, I got a bass when I was 10 years old out of the Sears catalog and I was a bassist and I played in the school jazz band, the school orchestra, and that was my thing. And then by the time I got into the early 90s, I realized with music being what it was in the early 90s, particularly R&B and soul, it was entirely program based, drum machines, Mm -hmm. samplers, like you might see a band on the road, but in the studio, everything was done with programming and drum machines right and um i was like if for me to try to find eight other guys and start like how cool in the gang started like yeah in junior high school eight of us got together we all played different instruments that wasn't going to happen where i was where i was geographically and the time period but then i noticed a lot of my friends were in a hip-hop and i would recognize that the production was sample based and the Mm -hmm. music and the beats was the records i played bass to so I had an encycl- right. I had an encyclopedic knowledge of the records that were the DNA for the early 90s hip hop records. I was like, mm-hmm. I know all these records and I'm 14, 15. And my boys are like, how do you know? I'm like, because I listen to old music. Right. So I had a I, had, I realized I had a head start because I had bass playing chops and I had music theory and I had musical knowledge beyond my years for the age. And I said, if I get into hip hop and figure out how they're doing this then I have a head start. So do you, do you think that it's, I have, I have sort of like a double sided question. One, do you think that the reason why hip hop back in the day was all old samples was because the people who were creating it grew up the same way that you did listening to their parents' records and were like, Oh man, I could take this and chop it up and create a, and create, you know, a beat out of it. Well, and, yeah, it was, it was that. And, and, you know, a lot of in the 70s and 80s, well, in New York City, they started to take music out of the public schools mm-hmm. and people, you know, just couldn't, they weren't getting access to instrument instruction. So DJing became a way to do it. And you would take two copies of a record that had four to eight bars of open drums and you would loop it ad infinitum with two copies. And that's how the whole breakbeat thing started for the break for the, the B boys and B girls, the dancers to dance. Mm-hmm. They would isolate the, the drum breakdown of an old funk or soul record or even a rock record or a jazz record and keep it going. And then what they started doing in the 80s is using the technology to emulate that experience in the studio. 
And right. the, te- the technology and the innovation got ahead of the legal side. So when they started bringing this onto records, by the time we get in the 90s and hip hop artists are getting signed to major labels, here come the lawsuits because now you a record on Columbia is sampling, you know, a, a record on uh, Time Warner is sampling Gilbert O'Sullivan without a clearance. So then the legal side came. So that's what right. happened eventually. But that's, I think it was that experience. And um, so that, and I said, this is closer to funk than actual modern R&B was in the 90s. I was interested in funk, plain and simple. Right and and it, and the sampling was the clear. It, it was the funk. It was just looped up. Sampling yeah, yeah. yeah. And, what and who, like funk wise? Who were you listening to, or who were you interested? In? Uh, cool and the Gang was my favorite band always. Um, and Funky George Brown, the drummer, is my number one influence as far as drumming. When mm-hmm. I got into drumming, he was my biggest inspiration to grab the sticks. And um, a group called Slave from uh, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, the bass player was a guy named Mark Adams who passed away and he was 16 or 17 playing with like Jocko Pistorius like dexterity, but he was just nasty, his tone. He was the reason I picked up a bass because when I heard Mark Adams playing a bass, I was like, this is otherworldly. I mean, this, I was 10 years old and could even say like, oh my God, like would it, listen to the bass sound, the recorded bass sound and what he's doing and when I got my bass and would try to play the, the records by Slave, I just was dumbfounded. I didn't know how he did it. I couldn't figure it out. Hmm. So Slave was another group, um, BT Express, Brass I never even heard of Slave. Yeah. That, well, the guy, a guy named Steve Arrington, who uh, went on to become a, a popular R&B singer and a drummer. He was the drummer for the band. That hmm. was the group he started with. If you check them out, they were more like a funk rock band that eventually went more into dance music. But Got you. The bass player was just a monster, monster, monster bass player, um, Mark Adams. And that that was my impetus right there. Um, and, of course, Ohio players, Funkadelic, Bohannon, mm-hmm. Brass Construction, BT Express, The Meters, you know, yeah, all, yeah. The, all the George Clinton-related stuff. I mean, all you know, all of this was part of my DNA musically. So that was already there from, I'm talking like 9, 10 years old. And... Um, when I eventually started playing drums, that was the first thing I reached for was All whatever stuff. Because when, when I got into drums, I started playing at like 34, 35, like in order to maintain the innocence of starting over, I went back to the music I liked as a kid because I right. wanted to capture the innocence. And the first album I ever heard in my life in its entirety was Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. My mm-hmm. father played it for me. Um, in the car, like, like he bought it because that was when they cassette tapes were out and they would reissue the old tapes from the 60s. And he played me that. And I remember Third Stone from the Sun made my hair stand up when I first <laughs> heard it. And one of the first drummers I studied was Mitch Mitchell because it, yeah. it came from there. And when I started learning more, his, realizing that his use of rudiments and six stroke mm-hmm. ro- rolls and triplets and things like that, he's basically taking. Elvin Jones and Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa language and squeezing it into a rock context. I mean, all those guys were like Bonham, you know, like all Ginger Baker, were. all those, they were all jazz. They were all they, jazz guys, you yeah. know, like Funky George from Cool and the Gang, his favorite drummer is Elvin Jones, but you can hear bits of Jack DeJanette and you can hear bits of Elvin Jones and Max Roach. And a lot of the early funk drummers were jazz guys trying to make money because right. making, make, playing drums for dancing, for dance floor was how you got paid, mm-hmm. you know, making pop, making hit records. And they would go play jazz in the clubs at night to feed their passion. But the money of the late 60s, early 70s was in R&B. So a lot of those guys came out of 
jazz. Right. So which is I funny now, playing, like yeah. there's uh, like now it's like you play pop to make money so that you can go play funk and R and B. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly. I do drum breaks. I found a niche early with drum breaks, and that pays the bills. But then my passion is my band, the, the Do Rights, which is a right. funk band. You know what I mean? So it's that's just the way it is. When the drum, the drums, it's like a, like any other craft. Like you have to separate. Like if somebody might enjoy painting their house orange because they're a master painter, but when you they hire you hire them to paint your house, and they want you want them to paint the walls white, you're paying them to paint the walls white. So they do because they're a painter by skill. Yeah. So that's what they do. And then when yep. they want to paint all their walls in the house fuchsia, when they get home, they can do that yep. and live with it. So yeah. it was I, I, I made sure to adopt the 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 uh the the serve the work for mentality mindset when I mm-hmm. started over as a drummer. That was very important to me to 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 learn how to survive as an artist, but then to be inspired too. Right. And and that comes from, you know, all of these experiences and, and studying music and looking at God, all the drummers, my favorite drummers and favorite musicians all did it. Right. You know, so it's right. it's part of survival as a musician, you know. It's it's so interesting to me that so I learned I learned the complete opposite way that you did. Mm. So I learned well, not the complete opposite, but I learned listening to hip hop. Wow. Like I I mean like I grew up on hip hop from forever like my parents always had the radio on in the house and everything uh but i have an older brother and all we listened to was hip-hop and then as i started to get older i realized that oh this is they sampled parliament or they sampled the meters or they sampled this person or that person so i kind of had to like reverse engineer my learning to be like i love all this hip-hop stuff and i don't know if it's because I love the hip hop stuff that made me love the meters and, and you know, all this funk and R and B and soul mm-hmm. that they sampled for these tunes. But it's just interesting. Like I, last night I was watching um, comedians in cars getting coffee. <laughs> right. I don't know if you watched that. At yeah, all. I have. Yeah. Um, and Jerry Seinfeld said something that I thought was really interesting. He was like, everyone has their own journey and their own process. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how you get, we're all trying to get to this island. And it yes. doesn't matter if you swim or take a boat or take a jet or parachute. He's like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We're all trying to get there. And like you talking about how you learned all this music and me thinking about how I learned, like we got to the same island, which I think is super cool. We, yeah. We Just got took to the same. different modes of transportation. Right. And then we're both working drummers, but it's like I came in on the back end of a hip hop career, whereas the guy on the if I'm doing a show, the the band before me or after me, he started playing at age five and I started playing at 35. Yeah. But we had different things. So what I have in knowledge and production and knowing how to get drums to sound good and knowing how to serve the music he has in playing sex tuplets at blazing (laughs) speed that I just haven't had the years to acquire that kind of chops. Right. You know, so it's like, but we both can work. Mm-hmm. We're not in competition with each other because we're both serving the music in different ways. He'll do a solo clinic on YouTube and people will hire me to get around sample clearance. Right. <laughs> you know, right. but we're both we're both working drummers. It's just because we had different pathways to where we are, it created different career opportunities, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yep. um, that that's a big part of it. But, but our goal is to just make the best music we can make and be the best musicians we can be. Yep. You know, um, yep. how, when it started for you with production and you, when you started playing bass, what was that? What was that like for you? How did you, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, okay, I, I'm a producer now. Like, what did you start doing? 
Uh, well, back then that was high school. Yeah. I would just start making beats, like sampling records that I always wanted to sample because I had knowledge of that stuff. And then I right. would play, I would play my own bass lines on top. And I had an SP twelve hundred, mm-hmm. which was a sampling drum machine with about ten seconds of memory back yeah. then. And you had to be real creative to get your samples to fit in that space, you right. know. So, th- so in high school, that's I went from a bass player. I eventually quit the orchestra because. You know, I just what, what was feasible. It's like it's always like what's feasible to you is what you gravitate towards. Like we we all want to be idealists, but at a point, it's like what's going to work for you, right? Musically, and um, at that time in my life, that was what worked. So I would intern in a lot of local studios and uh, pick up knowledge, and then I got a job working for Slick Rick's DJ and engineering in his studio. Mm-hmm. I was the head engineer in senior year of high school, nice fresh, freshman year of college. And then I went away to college for music. And then at that point, I was getting deeper into production. And then it ended up being, I ended up having a 10-year run before I stopped. you know. Yeah. And then I had a couple of years after. But at that point, I was trying to move more into being a drummer and composer. So, you know, but I had like a 10-year run doing that. And right. when it ended, it ended. And I was happy to end it. Yeah. And, um, you know. On to the I, next chapter. Yeah, I published a book about it. So I don't have to ever talk about it ever again. And because I don't, one thing about me is my worst trait as an artist is I can't look back. Like I'm not nostalgic. Like I'm always just looking for the next thing. Right. And right. Um, looking, moving forward. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I started picking up the drums around 2011 or 12, you know, it was kind of like daunting because I was older. I had bills, I had responsibilities and you got to somehow make five or six hours a day. Cause I remember when I first got my drum machine or my sampler, in high school, I would come home from school three thirty and be on that thing till nine. When I was playing yeah. bass in grade school, I would come home from school at four, do homework, watch, watch a little, you know, afternoon TV, and then from five to nine, I'd be in there playing bass with the headphones on. Yep. So to so to to have that same approach at thirty four, thirty five, and you've got bills and things to take care of. That's why a lot of adults don't learn an instrument because they just don't have the time. But yeah. Yeah, I had the biggest challenge was finding a way to make the time. There's no way around those early years of just woodshedding your ass off. Like there's yeah. just there's no way around it. And when people realize that they can't get where they want to get in the time they want to get to it, they give up. But you have to love the sound of yourself sounding like crap. Mm-hmm. You have to sit there and play like crap for hours and days. Like yo, I suck, but you know what? This is fun. I'm gonna get up and do it again tomorrow. Yep. And then after yeah. two years of that, you no longer suck. I was like, going to say, I think that there's a, there is a, uh, and I say it a lot that there's a period of time, a year, two years, there has to be some period of time where you're playing four or five, six, seven hours a day. If you really want to like, if you really yeah. want to master this inter- instrument, you need that for you at least to. two, but, and, and for most people, it happens when they're younger or when they're in college because they have a ton of time. Yeah. Right. And, and less like bills, you said. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. like no responsibilities. No, no responsibilities. Really. Yeah, I mean, right. I had responsibilities, but I used my responsibilities to my advantage, and I had to sacrifice a lot. Right. You know, so, to, how to did you it. find that? Because we hear it all the time. People, are, even now, who've been playing for years, are like, "Oh, I don't have any time to practice." So, what happened was, uh, at the time, this was like, tw- like I, I I got my first kit when my book came out, like October of 2011, and for six months, I just was so bitter about my hip hop career that I just wanted to find love for music again. Mm-hmm. So I would sit down and just play to my favorite James Brown records, and just play along, just just to try to enjoy it. And after about six months, I said, "Man, 
I'm spending so much time doing this. I need to do this for real. Like it's more than playing along the records. Like you, right. this is a whole journey. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm thinking like, I just turned 35, you know, but my grandmother, I was living with my taking care. I was an at home caregiver for my grandmother mm-hmm. who was in her late eighties and she had dementia uh, and she was, it was getting worse. And I had to be here even with a home health aide, I had to be here all day. And when she would go to bed at about five or 6 PM, then I would go out and make my money. So I, I job for years. I would do like wedding DJs. Like I would go help them carry the gear and set up the stuff. Cause I used to be a DJ too. So I knew equipment right. and I would work at nights. I would DJ at night. I was still DJing. Mm-hmm. So I would do that. I would, you know, write columns for things. And I was just odd jobbing my ass off so that from 11 AM to 5 PM every day was no bullshit. Like just practice, practice, practice. And that went on for a couple of years. Wow. And um, that's how I found the time. You know, like I was fortunate that I was here and I had a responsibility, but to make money, I had to find unorthodox ways and unorthodox hours <laughs> to make yeah, my yeah, money yeah. in so I could survive. And I had to sell, I sold 80% of my record collection. I had a giant record collection, sold most of it because to go from a hip hop studio to a, to record drums and get drums cost money. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and, and I was into like the 60s, 70s breakbeat soul thing. So in the beginning, I'm looking up vintage drums and here's a Camco set for X amount of money or here's a, you know, or I want to get this microphone. So I, I got the cheapest equipment I could find to do the job. But even just buying, just getting hardware, getting cymbals, mm-hmm. getting sticks, getting different heads to try out on the drums. I would have two or three kits, you know, right. one one for an 80s dead sound with no heads on it, another jazz one in smaller sizes with rezo heads. You want to have options to record. Then I had to set the room up. So this was also costing me a lot of money. Right. So I, so I sold most of my hip hop equipment and I sold 80% of my record collection. Anything I had bought to sample over the last 20 years, I sold it. And I had a few thousand dollars. And with that, I reinvested the money in setting up my studio to record drums. And whatever was left over, I invested in lessons because I was primarily self-taught. And then one day I'm playing and I'm looking at old videos of Simon Phillips in the 70s, 80s. They got the symbols way up 50 feet in the sky. <laughs> yeah. and, I'm, and I'm trying to do that. And then all of a sudden, I can't even grip a container of almond milk because I got tendonitis in my hand. So then oh, I go sit man. with the teacher and he's like, no, that's not good. Put your symbol the same where you would put a tenor rack, Tom, and you can reach it real easy and you don't hurt. Because when you, if you do that when you're 12 or 13, you're fine. I was 35, 36. Like, I'm getting pain already. Like, old sports injuries. I'm, I'm getting old. And I'm like, if I'm having pain, I can't play. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to take lessons just for ergonomics. Technique, I used to grip the right the right stick too tight when I was trying mm-hmm. to play ride beats, relax your hands. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like, you know, like you event, I eventually, I didn't take ongoing lessons, but I would take two or three lessons with a teacher to learn things. I would start mm-hmm. playing paradiddles and I would play them like a meters record because I'm funk is in my DNA. So <laughs> it's like, swoggy, like- <laughs> and the teacher was like, no straight. And I was like, 
And I'm sitting there thinking of Sissy Strutt when I'm playing meters. And, right, right. And, you know, like I would do a six-stroke roll. I would go a six-stroke roll and then accent and then kick because that's the Motown film. Boom. Yeah. You're like, no, just don't. I'm like, no. Boom. Boom. And it's like, like you're doing a six-stroke, but you're voicing it in a specific way. And like, so I everything I did from the rudimental, from the... The, the drum theory standpoint was coming out like a funk record or a hip hop break. Right. So I had to learn how to do that. So all these things are part of the experience. They cost money and they take time. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of sacrifice. You know, there, there's a couple of things that that stick out to me. And you would mention before about when you started making beats and and I'm hearing the same thing now with when you started playing drums is that you have this you have this ability to kind of reduce it down to something simple and just start with what you have and yes. and build build from there and and I think a lot of times we think that we have to have it all figured out we got to have the best gear we got to know all the answers mm-hmm. we got to do this we got to do that and mm-hmm. you're sort of like not sort of you are just like let's just let me ju- I got this thing right here right I have mm-hmm. these I have three boxes that are sitting here and like they sound like something so I'll play drums on those things until I get a tom or whatever it is right and and all all the people I look up to started that way. Maurice White from Earth, Wind, and Fire was a great drummer, obviously with Ramsey Lewis and stuff. And he used to you know take tree branches and make drumsticks before yeah. he got sticks. So I used a chair me, for a snare drum, you know. Yeah, like I mean, look, I was I was getting major label artists around sample clearances with drum replays before I ever played live. Like that's Crazy. backwards. Most kids start in their garage or they start in church. And yep. then they do that for years. They get on the stage and 12 years into their career, they finally sit down in the studio to cut their first record. Yeah. I was creating drums for producers to get around sample clearances and so, I had never so played let's, live. Let's, I want to I explain <laughs> that to people who aren't, who aren't hip to what you're talking about in terms of sample clearances and sound recreations to get around the royalties. Can you explain that a little bit? Okay, so with sampling, obviously, there's two sides to a sample. There's the master and there's the publishing. And that's why sampling is so expensive. So sampling is if you're literally taking a piece of someone's song and putting it into yours. Existing music and putting it in yours. So let's just say you take, uh, you know, let's just, for all intents and purposes, you know, you take, uh, I don't know, like the meters, you know, um, the same old thing. Mm -hmm. The same old now let's just say you just take two set one bar of those drums and loop it too. Like that was a common practice in hip hop production early on, and it's a pastiche. Okay, now I'm gonna take a bass line from this Otis Redding record, and I'm gonna take a horn from this uh, you know, Ornette Coleman record, and I'm gonna put a so this wall of sound way of producing, sampling other people's music got prohibitively ex- prohibitively expensive because of the legal fees. And when people didn't clear and get permission, they would get sued Mm -hmm. and it would mess up your money. So what happened was drums are a a very difficult instrument to get an authentic sound out of. Um, The playing was never the problem. It was the sound. And hip hop would always look down on live instrumentation, not because of the playing, but because the sound was crap. And the sound of those 70s and 60s records was what appealed to people more so than even the playing. They would isolate the kick and snare and hi-hat and program their own drums using the individual sounds mm-hmm. from those records because the sound of the records was warmer. We're talking calf heads. We're talking drummers who don't hit very hard. 
We're talking about reel-to-reel tape. We're talking about, you know, uh, it's on vinyl, so it create it changes the sound. You get these very warm, dirty drum sounds. Yep. And people just in modern times didn't, with modern equipment, didn't have the know-how to get that sound. So with me coming from a production background, my first experience as a drummer was recreating the break beats I love so much because that was my entry into drumming. Oh, I always liked that drum beat. I'm going to learn that today. And then what I would do was I would record it with my little janky setup. And when I would listen back, it would sound authentic. Like it would sound like a record that was pulled from 1971. Right. And I was like, I didn't know how I was doing it, but it, it didn't sound like, you know, like you're in Guitar Center and you got these Sabian B8s that are piercing your ears. And right, these, right. You know, they, these just these clear headed toms. And it, like, it sounded like a real record quality wise. Right. So when I started doing that for my own stuff and talking to my peers about it, they were like, hey, I have this drum beat on this rock record. You know, it costs X amount to clear it. We can't afford it. I'll pay you as a session player and give you a piece of the publishing if you can get me close to that. Right. So what, the, so, uh, this, you know, just to dig in, dig in a little bit deeper. I know that you do this. My buddy Dylan Wissing does this a lot too. The sound recreation stuff, where, yeah, someone will go to you and be like, "I love this James Brown beat. I don't have enough mm-hmm. money to actually sample this beat. So, can you try to get this sound right?" So then you go yeah. to work and you figure yeah. out, try to figure out what snare they use, what kind of sticks they use, what kind of cymbals they use, get muffling, all that kind of stuff to mm-hmm. recreate that sound because then legally you can use that without without having to get clearance for a sample. Yes. And it's a lot cheaper for the artist and it provides work for studio musicians. And I would venture to guess that 99% of the people wouldn't never be able to tell the difference. Nope. And what you do is you change it. I mean, it'll never sound exact, but it'll sound close. Right. Like I did, like I did like Mad Lib recently, a month ago on his new album, Mm -hmm. Sound Ancestors. He had a song called Road of the Lonely Ones with Fortet. And they sampled my drums from one of my breakbeat records, and it was me playing an interpolation of a Lou Donaldson groove that Idris Muhammad played fifty plus years ago. Nice. What tune? Uh, road. Oh, what what what? The Lou, Lou Donaldson, Donaldson tune. Oh, uh, it was uh, "Ode to Billy Joe." Oh, cool. Right. So it was like, but I did my version, and it was a little bit different. I changed a couple of notes. I, I moved a couple of drags and ghost notes around. I made it a different performance, but I mic'd my kit in the way that. I read what I do know about Van Gelder and what I know about Idris Muhammad. I just, I tried to apply that. And I did it just for a drum break library seven, eight years ago. And Mad Lib samples it and you go to the YouTube comments and people think it's Lou Donaldson and it's not. And I'm like, well, and now, and I had only been playing drums for two years at that point. So when I made that, you know what I mean? So it's like me playing in two years, if they mistake what I'm playing for, and Idris Muhammad performance on a Lou Donaldson Blue Note record, then that means that I'm getting pretty close. Yeah. I was close then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, but for a while I felt very self-conscious about my entry into drumming because it was unorthodox. Like I eventually started touring, playing with other musicians, doing the traditional drummer stuff, but it came way later. It mm-hmm. came around 2015, 16, 17. And I did my first mid-major tour in 2019. Right. So, you know, most people do all that first, then they get in the studio. I was getting people around sample clearances and doing breakbeat albums years before I 
played with other people. And I was self-conscious because when at the end of the day, like the number one, for me, the best thing about music is how you play with others. Yep. That's to me, my goal. I don't want to be a breakbeat drummer. I want to be a drummer and musician. I want to play with other people because the synergy between you and the other musicians is the magic. Yep. You know, you got that woodpecker going off in your ear at 87 beats a minute that pays the bills and it was an interesting inch entry into drumming, but you don't want to stop there. You want to develop as much as you can and learn as much as you can to become a well-rounded player. It's just, I did it backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I was, so whereas drummers in the, most drummers learn on a stage and when they get in the studio, the engineer's mad because they're hitting too damn hard because they're used to playing on mic. They're used to playing in jams, two big Marshall stacks. Yeah. So they're slamming the drum. So when they get in the studio, most drummers will say, yeah, when I first got in the studio, the engineer was pissed because the mics were compressing because I was hitting too hard and bashing and yada, yada. And I mean, I that was me. To... Yeah. Yeah. That was, I had the opposite problem. I had a great, I was a very quiet player because <laughs> I lived in a house with my grandmother. I was recording in early. So I had a very light touch. Mm-hmm. But when I got on stage for the first time, I got lost because I played so quietly. I'm sitting here trying to do these little jazzy rudimental fills and I got two guitar players ramming on either side. They can't hear that shit. Just go Don't try to do Don't do that. Just it's not a breakbeat. Just two and four, turn your stick over to the other side and bash. And I remember my early live when I first started doing shows, my wrist, I'd be dunking it in buckets of ice water the next morning because I would tear my hands up because I wasn't because I wasn't used to playing loud. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So where I th- did you did you make I don't know if you made the same mistake that I did, but I used to think that playing loud meant you hit harder. And then I realized that playing loud is just you just need more height on your sticks and that's it. Yeah, you need you need more weight and then it's it's how you hit. Right. Like I would the be rim like, show. No, I gotta just ugh. Yeah. But I mean like when I say loud, I never was the kind of guy to lift my arm all the way back, but I would tense. Yeah, that's what I did. Tension, tension is the worst possible thing that you can possibly do because then you lose your groove, you lose your fluidity when you get tense and then everything gets crammed up. So how do I stay loose but be assertive? And then you learn about heavier sticks. You learn about where you hit the drum. You know, make sure your rim shots are good. You hit the rim in the center, you're going to get the loudest possible sound. You know, you bring your bass drum beater back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you learn these things where you can expend the same amount of energy you would at home, but get a louder sound. Like that only comes from being on a bandstand and being in pain for two, three days. Yeah. Like you, you learn to never, we got another show Friday. Like shit, I still got the Motrin <laughs> going on. I got the icy hot, you know, it's like this, like, and I told myself if I ever get on a tour and have to do this every night, I ain't going to make it. Like I got to figure out a way to. And when I eventually got on a tour, we were playing every night in another city and I'm mm-hmm. already tired from being in the van and flying. Like I found ways to sustain on the road so that I could be in peak shape every night. And But that comes from experience. Mm-hmm. And you only learn these things on the job. You can't read these things in a book. You can get YouTube experiences and testimonials, but you have to get out there and learn. So I think... Whereas a lot of guys learned about breakbeats, libraries, extra revenue sources, like now in the pandemic, a lot of guys are doing that because you're stuck at home. So they're doing more studio work than usual because there's no gigs. Right. But I started that way and I know how to do that. So I'm good. But being off the road, I never made a lot of money on the road, but that was where I got my growth into being a complete drummer. So So being on the road, you know, 
I learned that later. Like I would say in the last five years was most of my road experience. And that made me better as a studio player because I learned the full range of dynamics. I learned how to control things better. You know, I learned how to fix my posture, set my drums up the right way to not get hurt. Like when you're doing this every night and you're sharing a back line with another drummer or you're setting your drums up every night, like these are things you can't learn at home because you're sit you're, when you're at home, your drum set's comfortable. It's set up just like you want it. Exactly. Everything is perfect. Controlled environment. Over. Yeah. Controlled environment. When you're playing under pressure, you know, you're playing with a, with a, you know, a, a symbol that you can't adjust the height. And, you know, you, you, you learn early on the throne's the most important part. Always keep your throne with you because if you sit on one of them cheapies, your hips are going to be gone. Yeah, or when you're sitting there and you're, and you're the whole time you're wobbling around because they're wobbling around oh, and, the you know, the, the floor tom legs, like somebody cranked them so tight that you can't undo it and drop the height. So your floor tom is higher than your snare. Yeah, and you, bass drum sliding forward. Bass drum sliding and you're looking for a brick to put in the front. <laughs> then, the, then the singer has to reach over with their back foot and kick it back dude we played a, we played a gig where we were using rented gear and the kick drum was sliding forward so our tour manager literally sat in front of the bass drum the whole set <laughs> that's a true story i got pictures of it too it's amazing it's, tr- it's, it's true you see old photos of elvin jones with a hammer and nails nailing it stretched it to the floor <laughs> It's like you see Elvin on YouTube and I think with Jimmy Garrison with his trio and um, Joe Farrell and he's doing a solo. He's got this slingerling kit and it keeps sliding and Joe Farrell keeps moving it and you can see Elvin is pissed and the kit is sliding. There's no rug. It's just on a tile floor. Yep. And you know, But these are things that you can't learn in a controlled environment. You have to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You have to get out there every night playing in a different – playing for 1,000, 1,500 people than playing for five. Yep. Like, like your show on Friday and Saturday could have over a thousand people. Your show on Monday night might have seven people. Mm-hmm. You, you have to adjust. So yeah. like I was I was like fiending to get that experience. And, you know, luckily I, I was and that made me less self-conscious about the way I started. Right. It, because I was like, I got the experience. I just got it late. Well, you know? I mean, I think that. I, I also think that you got a lot of the other experience that people end up getting later. You got that at an early age. So you yeah, were early. It was just flip flop. Yeah. yeah. You were listening to records. You were playing along with records. You were, you know, you started with another instrument, all of those other things. I think the knowledge and understanding, I mean, I take a guy that plays for five years, but understands musicality over someone who's been playing for 20, who has no musical taste at all. Yeah, exactly. And I I did my first audition like four and a half years into playing and I got it. And, you know, it was one of those things where me being old enough and mature enough to understand what people want from what a lot of band musicians want from a drummer. If I was 18, I'd try to show my ass because I'd have all these chops. You're young and full of piss and vinegar. Yep. At the time, I was 39, and I had my own drummer interview series with Red Bull Music called Give the Drummer Some. And the day of my first audition, I interviewed Steve Ferrone, who's a groove master. Yeah. And I said, man, I got my first audition. I kind of know what to do. He's like, just play the song. Yeah. Don't get fancy. Don't get cute. Don't start reaching for these fills. Just play the song. Yep. And when I went in, I did just that. I learned the set. I played the song. I got the gig. And then the band leader was like, you know, you could do more fills if you want. I was like, cool. You, <laughs> you, you, you asked me for it. I will insert. But me being older and with years of experience in music outside of drumming, you learn what ego can do to your career. Mm-hmm. You, you learn that music is a team sport. It's not golf. It's basketball. Yeah. It's football. Yep. You need to work with these guys to make the best show possible. And 
whatever your role is in that particular band, you have to fulfill that role. If they want you to go ape shit, you do it. But if they want you to hold time, you do it. You know, you, you learn to be a, you go to go from being a hip hop artist, alpha dog to a, a, a work for hire mindset is a, is, is a bump down the ego. You yeah. got to check yourself. Cause now this ain't about you, your songs, you're the headliner, what you want. You are part of a machine yep. and what they can't, what they think matters because mm-hmm. otherwise you're out of a job. So to humble myself and deal with that change in dynamic from being a, a solo artist to a work, a, a team player, I think being older made it easier sure. because I under, I understand. And I also understood that I don't have the years of experience another drummer has, but I do have life experience and I have musicality. So let me play that up. And then the chops will eventually catch up on their own. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. So I, I played to that strength that I did have, you know, and, you know, eventually they would start giving me solos. Like after I, you know, cause I'm building my chops <laughs> right, right. when I'm not on the stage. So then I was just the, the pocket guy. And then when I started improving, <laughs> then I started getting solo, you know? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I always saw my, my path as a disadvantage early on. But over time, I was like, it, it was advantageous. It was just backwards. And it's all in how you look at it, mm-hmm. how you how you perceive it. And and um, it's it, we, like you said, we, we're all trying to get to that island and we all take different paths. Yep. So that's how you do it. You might take I-5. You're in California. So mm-hmm. it's I-5 and versus 110 or 101 or whatever. Like we're all going to get to, you know. Right, right, right. One might have more traffic. Mm-hmm. One might have more tolls. But it's like we're, we're, we're still going to try still to get, trying to, get, to get to the same place. Exactly. Yeah. Great news from Evans Drumheads. Now you can turn your drumheads into a work of art with their custom drumheads. All you have to do is upload your design and they print it using high quality photo resolution images directly onto the drumhead. And they're available in sizes everywhere from 16 to 26. And let me tell you, these things look amazing. They sent me a bass drum head with the Drummer's Resource logo on it. I was blown away. It looks so cool. And the best part is you can save 20% by using the promo code DRUMMER20, DRUMMER and then the numbers 20. So if you go to evansdrumheads.com, use the promo code DRUMMER20, you can not only save 20%, but you can also get yourself some amazing looking heads. The offer only runs until December 31st. So make sure you do it today. Go to evansdrumheads.com, use the promo code DRUMMER20. The Saturn Series drums have been a cornerstone Mapex series for more than 25 years. Now, the Saturn Evolution Series combines the best of all things Saturn in one series, including the Halo mounting system, which unlocks the freedom of full resonance, the sustain adjustment knob that gives you full control of resonance, decay, and tone, birch walnut hybrid shells that perfectly combine the sonic characteristics of walnut with the articulate punch of birch, delivering a dark, punchy, dry sound. And the iconic maple walnut hybrid shells, which has been at the core of the series for many years, providing a fuller, rounder tone with bright, versatile, open sound. For more information about the Saturn Evolution series, visit mapexdrums.com. Speaking of California, when we first moved out here, and this is... and. 
I'll, I'm telling this, this has nothing to do with my playing, but I think that it goes more to about the, the idea that musicality is the most important thing. So <clears throat> when I, I literally had just moved uh, to the West Coast and Buddy called me and was like, hey, a friend of mine needs a drummer. It's like this singer-songwriter chick. They're playing at a bar, whatever. Like, do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll go. So I bring my drum, you know, like, it's simple, like kick, snare, hi-hat, you know, I think maybe a floor tom. Uh, first of all, don't have a clutch. So like rookie mistake. I didn't have a clutch for my hi-hat. Gotta because have a clutch. <laughs> I, all my stuff was half in storage. We literally had just moved. And uh, so we get there. I get all set up. I use duct tape to like t- tape my uh, tape my hi-hat to the stand and everything. So it worked. But, but at the end at the end of the show, the bass player looked at me and goes, man, he goes, you must have got a lot of work in New York. And I was like, why? Do, why? What do you mean? And he was like, you, you sound really great. He was like, man, he was like, it was really, really easy to play with you. And I am not exaggerating when I say this. I did nothing on that, like nothing fancy. I did, I mean, zero, right? And I'm not, and this has nothing to do with my playing. It has to, it has to do with the fact that like a lot of times less is more. If you make it easy for people on the gig, they want to play with you. If you're not stepping on their toes, if you're not showing off and honestly, the like a lot of it was because I was like, I didn't know all the tunes. So I was like actively listening. I was like, I don't know what the dynamic is here. Let me like, let me be courteous. And it just goes to show that like, you don't got to go up on stage and start doing cartwheels to get hired. In fact, you would probably not get hired again. Yeah, you no, know? you should, you know, and when I'm like, what you just said is the utmost, like when, a, when, a, especially the bass player, when I get on a gig and a bass player, like I've been in a band where we've had three or four bass players. And every time a new one comes in, the first they, they look at me when they're playing, they give me the smile afterwards. They're like, yeah, man, you're easy to play with. That's the greatest compliment I can get yep. from the throne. Like, yo, I love playing with you. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't I don't I don't really care about you. Know, you got chops. You're, you're blazing fast. You're like, yo, I love playing with you. And when I'm when I'm playing with those people, I'm listening but then when I am thinking, all I'm thinking about is the spacing between the notes. Yeah. Like, like how can I make this this thing feel as good as as I possibly can? Like I'm thinking about how much attention, how much respect Steve Jordan gives a quarter note. You know, like yeah. when I'm when I'm playing, I'm just like, and if I start doing sixteenth note things here and there, like I'm just like really like dialed in on space. I'm not thinking three bars ahead about some fill I'm going to pull off. I'm just locked into the space and I'm listening to where the rhythm guitarist and the bass player are locking at. And I try to just anchor yep. and just, and if I see them smiling, that's the greatest thing feeling in the world for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, I started later and I come from a background of groove sample clearances, beats, you know, feel like, so I come from that background. So I always do my pad work every day. I work on my hands. I'm super into that stuff, but I like, that's for my own development. Like when I get out on a gig, I'm not trying to do paradiddle super fast. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's more, my experience wasn't like the whole chops thing. My Mm -hmm. experience was like, make people happy, you know, groove. Like most of the records that people sample for drums are technically imperfect. So if you, if you're like a hardcore drum guy, core like super technical kind of a drummer the breakbeats people love they, they're not going to impress you mm-hmm. because but but it's, people are like oh it sounds sloppy i'm like it's not yeah, sloppy, it it's loose. sloppy yeah it's loose it's a feel like it's you can you can eventually get fast if you but but if you can't teach feel like you gotta be steeped in the music to get mm-hmm. the feel 
Man, but I will say this: be... after th- we've done six hundred and some of these interviews, right? Wow, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people who have really good feel spent a lot of time listening to and playing with records. Period. Yeah. End of story. No questions asked. Like everyone from you to Steve Jordan to James Gadson to Steve Ferroni, all those guys, everyone was like, I played along with records. I listened to a lot of records. I went down rabbit holes of listening and listening and listening. You know, George Slupik, you know, who I, who I just had on, who connected us. Like, how did you, how did you learn all this, this, you know, all this music and style and, and feel and phrasing and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, I listened to records. You listen, you listen to records. And when you play the records, these are records that weren't, most of them weren't cut to a click. So your anticipation gets good. And I think, I I think the important thing and not to cut you off, I think the important thing too, playing with the records. And I, I already know that you did this is not just playing with the record, but like trying to play what they're playing on the record. Not just yeah. like blowing over top of it and like, oh yeah, I'm playing to records. No, you're not. No, you're playing. And to your it ego. also, and it all, yeah, exactly. And it <laughs> also teach, it also teaches you about chord structure. Yep. Right. Like you learn about your chord progressions when you do feel you know where to put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When, when when you you know when you you change dynamically when you're playing on a record, picking up intensity in the chorus or during the solo, but laying back in the verses. Like you could play to a click for 20 hours a day. You're never going to get that. Right. Unless when you play the records, you get sensitive. Like Al Jackson is one of the most solid drummers in history. The first couple of years, like I just would have Booker T and the MG's greatest hits. And I would play to that thing every day Mm -hmm. just to get, just to get the feel together, the space. And, and, and Steve Ferrone, I would play those average white band soul searching album. And it never failed early on. Every time I went around the corner for a fill, Steve is like, hey, I'm back here. Where did you go? Like, I'm all the way into the net. And that's what showed me that a lot of people, some people's intention is to rush and some people's tendency is to drag. And I learned from playing to somebody like Steve Ferrone, great time. I learned that my tendency was to rush. Mm -hmm. So then the metronome came out because I figured out the problem. And then I played with it down on 50 beats a minute. Do you you feel like you used to rush in grooves or in fills? I used to rush in fills and in grooves when you had a lot of linear 16th note stuff, the spacing between tick, 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 all the sub like be, subdivisions, the, all the, yeah. all the, like the subdivisions might not be super clean. So like I might, it was easy to, and I would like rush the individual ghost notes sometimes. Yeah. And I, so I might not. Yeah. When you, and when you're playing, it's, it's hard when you're doing it on your own, because when you're playing with people, I think that you get, you get if you if you're playing with really good players, you start to get some of that constructive criticism. Like I had, mm-hmm. I used to play with this bass player, Stacy McGee. Uh, played with Boys to Men for years and Genuine and all these other people. He was an awesome. Bass. He had a, he had impeccable time. And mm-hmm. uh, we we're playing a gig one night, and he's like, "Hey man, just so you know, like you, I I've been meaning to talk to you about this. You speed up when you do fills." And mm-hmm. I'm like, "If he never told me that, I don't even know if I would have ever discovered it." You know what yeah. I mean? And so it's like getting around, either getting, being very hypercritical when you're in your practice room or when you're playing, recording yourself or whatever, or getting around people who are great and, musicians. Right. And I think one advantage I did have to starting how I started is when you're recording yourself doing drum breaks, everything's solo. Like you're not playing with other people. So every mistake sticks out like a sore thumb. Whereas when you're playing with people, if you like get sloppy with your ghost notes, you really can't tell. Because every everything's on top of it, 
So a lot of times you can get stems from records from the 60s and 70s and you hear the isolated drum tracks and you could hear they're not perfect. Right. There's all kinds of rushing and dragging and this sloppiness. And that's fine because the music is human and great. But we never knew all these years that these things existed because they're underneath all the music. Yeah. So when you're primarily playing with other people, you might get good time, but your individual spacing might be sloppy and and that contributes to the feel Mm -hmm. because if you start with a swung feel and then it gets straight and then a little swung and then a little straight like that's something you have to go into the woodshed and work on because you might not hear it with a whole band playing but when you have a three-minute isolated drum track and you can hear that the swing eventually starts to straighten up gradually or that you're rushing notes here and there or your dynamics are kind of getting off in parts Mm -hmm. like it's under a microscope totally unfiltered right so then that's so when you're hypercritical of what you're of these drum tracks and you're realizing you're going to send this to some producer or engineer and they're going to be listening to this in their session you're like oh no i can't send them that (laughs) like so then you so then that's what tells you okay tomorrow we're going to put this metronome on 60 and we're going to play that groove slow before we play it fast yeah. And then then your muscle memory and your, your feel for the spacing comes. And then when you speed it up, it's actually it's easier to play fast than it is to play drastically slow. So that is because you sure. can you, because when you play fast, if you do something sloppy, no one's going to catch it. Yeah. But if you play something real slow, every note is like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, trying so, to play like some ghost note groove at 40 beats a minute is like, oh, no, the, I, mean, <laughs> I think I think even pro drummers are going to have a problem with that yeah. because. Not a lot of situations call for it. You have to reach for that as a pro- You'll probably never be asked to do that, but you do that to develop so that when they ask you to do it at 71, it it's a breeze. real good. Real good, and you're not spending six hours to do it. You're doing it in a couple of takes. You know yeah. what I mean? So being hypercritical, playing the records, mm-hmm. you know, the sample stuff helped, but then playing with people. Um, we're in the cell phone era, man. Like this is something that the drummers we grew up admiring, they didn't have this. So every rehearsal, when I first started playing with people, I would record every rehearsal as a voice note. And I would connect the thing in my car, the little adapter, and I would listen all the way home. And I could be like, yo, I'm rushing. Like, my BPM went up like 12 around that fill. Like, that's just crazy. Like, I would be in the car. Figuring it out, yeah. It's like being an athlete and you watch game film on Monday. Yeah. Who missed a block? You know what I mean? Like, who should have cut at this time? Who did this? Who did that? Like... When I first started playing live, I would film all the shows Mm -hmm. and not even for Instagram purposes or showing off for my own, for my own review. And for review, I think is the key word and not for self-deprecation and to get on and to, you know, get on yourself and tell yourself how much you suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it wasn't, it wasn't to feel bad and it wasn't to put up and humble brag. It was for me to all those early shows and rehearsals, I would go back and listen and say, okay, where... Where can I fix stuff? You know, and, and like, that's the small things like going around a fill speeding up is natural because the energy picks up. You want it to be elastic. You don't want it to be metronomic the whole time. But if you're going up insanely and you're landing in places where the band can't lock, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So you, so I spent, you're not going to learn these things doing breakbeat kits for people. Right. You're not going to learn these things doing getting, you know, sample clearance and drum libraries that's a revenue stream. That's a skill. It's a niche. It's great. But you're not going to learn these survival skills in your basement. So I remember we were on the road, the keyboard player in the band, one of the bands I'm in, he had a little handheld cassette recorder. He recorded every show. And in the van, the next day, we would listen to the show yeah. 
just for, these guys all went to Berkeley. So like for them, it's shits and giggles. For me, I'm in the back, like with the stone face on, like, man, like I got to get consistent with the backbeat. Like I'm clicking like crazy in this song and this, that, and this is off. And I'm sitting, I'm not saying nothing, but in the back of my mind, I was like tonight, be cognizant of that. Right. Right. And that's why touring makes you better. Like even a 10 day tour, you can improve dramatically because every night you're putting things under a microscope and correcting them. And between show number two and show number eight, you can hear that problem starting to alleviate because you're, you're, you're being aware yep. and you're not just play, getting caught up in the emotion of playing. You're, you're aware, you're still enjoying the emotion and the vibe, but you're, you're, you're being cognizant of what's a problem. And the band never complained about this. This was me. Right. Right. Because I'm like, one day somebody might share this footage. <laughs> and I'm going to have to like untag myself from the post. I'm having, because <laughs> Jay, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like I, one day I'm going to look back on this. So it's it's like you said, it's not in a way to trash yourself or be hypercritical, but it's a way to get better. And these are advantages that our heroes didn't have. Mm -hmm. they, they just they just played so much that it just happened. And then, like you said, somebody in the band might tell an older member of the band might tell them what was going on, but now we can actually bear witness ourselves. Yeah. So I document, I documented from my very first rehearsal on through my first show, my first tour, I would eventually delete it because it takes a space of your phone, but I would document everything, go over it. What can I learn from that? And then delete it. Yeah. And I documented my whole thing because we're in the phone era. You got to take advantage. Like if you can post your stuff on Instagram all day, you can use it constructively and, document what you're doing the ugly parts yeah. and try to work on those i think it's know, so. i think it's an under very underutilized and underrated thing to record yourself i mean i talked to benny greb about this a couple of weeks ago and he like he's a big advocate of recording everything and i am too mm. and i think if you really want an eye opener put a song on that you think you play really well have it in your mm. ears and just record yourself playing the drums and see what you sound like without the music you know what I mean? Because it's just your drum playing, and it, I think it'll be, I think it'll be an eye opener. But the other yeah. side of it too, and this is, you know, this is from Benny Grab. This isn't for me, but he's like, if you, if you record yourself practicing and you constantly see yourself getting better by watching the footage from last mm -hmm. week, last month, last year, then mm -hmm. the need for motivation to practice goes out the window because you'll be so excited to see the progress that you're making. You cannot wait to get back in there and make more progress. It's what, what he said is so key. Like, that's what I was saying earlier about if you can deal with being lousy and still love to do it, when you start to hear the results, you get even hungrier. Mm -hmm. I remember in the beginning when I first started playing in 20, early 2012, when I decided to play seriously, like I said, I DJed a lot. What I used to do was go to Monday nights. There was a DJ event called Mobile Mondays where DJs would play old funk and soul 45s, mm -hmm. my kind of music. And I used to DJ there all the time. I went every Monday, took my pad, a snare stand and some sticks. And I sat in the back of the club because I knew that sitting there doing stick control to a click at home, I would, after two or three minutes, I would get up and walk away and go to the kit. So I never got to work on my hands. Mm -hmm. And, but when I was playing to music in a social environment and a girl comes up and says, hello, and talks to you and you know, you're playing to these disco records <laughs> and for, I'm like, I've worked on my hands for three hours. Everybody's laughing at me, but they think it's interesting. And I'm sitting there in a, in a lounge in New York City with a pad and sticks in the back of the club. Yeah. That was the only, but I needed to do that because I didn't have the patience to pull out 
Ted Reed books and Lawrence George Stone books and sit there for hours with a chirper. You know, yeah. like I had to find a way to work on my hands for hours at a time to get them to where I needed them to be. And then that's how I got my start. And then once I started seeing the improvement and people started saying, yo, you're, I remember I took a lesson with Mike Clark. I took two. And the second one like was like a year later. He's like, yo, man, your hands look so much better. Now, every morning I turn on Austin Burcham's creative pad patterns. It's a 35 minute workout. My morning coffee, I do that 35 minute workout. And then I do the Tommy Igo 10 minute before bed. Nice. So every day I'm getting 45 minutes on my hands, whether no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. Like that, and and I love it. What's the thirty-five minute one? uh, Austin Austin Burcham, B U R C H A M. He has creative pad patterns for drummers, and it's fifteen exercises done at three different tempos, Um, and it's just a combination of singles, doubles, flams, um, flam taps. There's like uh, you know alternate you know uh, dynamics, like right, left, left, right, right, left. You know, like there's there's fifteen exercises at three tempos. And you're forced to really, really work and really think. And I started that on April Fool's Day last year. I'm like, yo, we're in this pandemic. This COVID thing is here to stay. I ain't got nowhere to go. So on April 1st last year, I discovered the video. I've done it every day since then. I missed three days because of migraine headaches between April 1st last year. Every morning, coffee, turn on the local news or sports center or something. And I take that pad. And when the sun's coming up, I do that thing every morning. And John Wicks from Fits in the Tantrum is a friend of mine. He's like, do your pad work in the morning? Because then if your day gets away from you, you at least know you kept your hands in shape. Yeah. Right. What is so it on I YouTube? It's on YouTube. Can you send me the link? Because I want to put that in the show notes. Yes. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And I've done that every single day. And then I do one of the Tommy Igo ones or maybe Rob Beatdown Brown, mm-hmm. like five minutes of singles. I'll do that before bed at night. And so no matter what happens in between the day, there might be a day where think where life happens and I only get five minutes on my kid. Yeah. I, at least I got, at least I, because working on your hands is like playing basketball. Like if you stop shooting free throws for a week, you're going to lose. It's going to take you a while to get it back. Like if I don't pick up my sticks for a day or two, I can feel it. Like my hands feel like they're made of clay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So this is a discipline that's different from being a producer, like, because it's physical, it's like stretching, you know what I mean? Or like, so I'm not doing this to be a, a drum corps champion. I'm doing this to keep my hands loose. And I learned, I learned to enjoy practicing when I started seeing what practice can do. Right. I think people hate practicing because early on there's no improvement because you're in level zero, you're in a basement. Mm-hmm. But then there's, there's a switch that goes off at a certain point. Yeah. And then when you realize, you know, the work that you put in, you know, then, and you realize it's paying off. And then other people say, yo, you know, my boy, Mike Duffy plays, you know, drummer around California. He's been super helpful. He's been playing for 30 years. He did core and everything. He's like, yo, your hands are getting better mm-hmm. in the videos. And then you go to Instagram and look at, I look at videos from three years ago and I'm like, wow, I got better. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not where I need to be, but I got a hell of a lot better. And then you realize this daily routine, coffee, pad, you know, go downstairs, metronome, slow, play it's on working. record. You just don't see it in real time. Yeah. But people who people who aren't in here with you, they can see it. Yeah. People who don't watch your videos or hear you for months, hear you later, you know, your time got better. And that that drive to get better, mm-hmm. it, it, it started with me taking the pad out to a nightclub and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a psychopath. But it's like that was the only way I could 
get on the road of working on these things that no drummer can avoid. Like you don't have to be a chops champ, but you should have enough facility in your hands to, to do interesting vocabulary yeah. and, and, and also keep loose. Like you, injury is, I'm, I'll be 44 in three weeks. Like injury is real. Like when I wake up with pain in my wrists or fingers, I panic because then I can't play. Mm-hmm. So this is all part of it. And I think if I was young, if I started when I was younger, none of this would matter. Mm-hmm. I would have my symbols 50 feet in the air. I would bash. I would play when I felt like playing. Right. And then, you know, so none of the bad habits were there because I knew I couldn't afford to because I'm too late in life. And I'm, I work, I do this, you know, full time now. So I'm too late in life to make those mistakes. Sure. Like I got bills to pay. I'm a grown man. I got to survive. Like I'm already, I can't go, I'm not going back to my prior career. Like I'm in this for the long haul. Right. I can't afford to make mistakes I would have made at 18. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to be smart about it and I've got to be smart about what I spend my time on and what I leave alone. I'm never going to be a gospel chops guitar center champion. Right. I'm never going to be that. Not going to bother. Yep. <laughs> because it's just not a good use of my time. Exactly. But, you know, so you learn that too when you're older. You you learn about finding a lane, learning as much as you can, but then having a focus instead of trying to play. I was talking to um, you know, Zach Albetta about this. Like, do you try to learn every single style or do you master a lane and learn a little bit about each style enough to be able to and we both agreed, like you try to master everything, there's always going to be somebody to outplay you in that and take your gig. You know, so it's like, because there's somebody who lives, eats, breathes, and sleeps bebop or reggae or break beats or drum and bass trap beats or just pocket or whatever. So you try to be as well-versed as you can, but then you you realize, like, you're never going to play in church. Yeah. That ain't going to happen. Right. Don't even bother. Right, right. (laughs) Well, I I also think it depends... Like if you if you don't want to play anything else than other than jazz, then I think it's I think it's almost like a waste of time to play. Well, it is a waste style. of time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Like if that's what you want to do, you know what I mean. Like me, because I'm mostly in funk and breakbeats, I have there's a little bit of influence from, from everything. everything. So I have to learn linear fills. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the level that like someone like Thomas Pritchett. I'll never be able to do that. Right. But I can. I have a couple of linear fills in case I get a job mm-hmm. that needs that. You know, I'll never be a bebop swing drummer, but I work on my ride beat because sometimes funk, the feel of good funk in certain hip hop has this inherent jazz swing. You might not be playing a dotted or you might not be playing a ride beat, but you have to internalize the feel and put that on the kick, snare and hat. Yep. So I listen to a ton of jazz and practice a ton of jazz, but I don't play jazz, but I use the feel for funk Mm -hmm. or hip hop, you know, like reggae and one drops. I never get to play reggae, but... That feel of the one drop, get, you can internalize that feel and apply it to a different style of music that you are, that is in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And, and so I try to take some of the you know, poignant points of each and apply it to what I'm doing, but I'm not going to spend 12 hours a day trying to do like drum and bass stuff. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's just not my lane. It's just a fool's errand, yep. you know, so... You, you get overwhelmed. Your brain like starts to explode if you feel like you have to master every single thing. And with me being older, I don't have the time. Yeah. Like I don't have the I don't have the physical years on earth to master every style of drumming. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. just don't. I, I've been playing. This is my tenth year playing. I don't have time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have. But, there's a lot of people that I talk to who are sort of in that position where they 
they say, okay, here's my plan. And it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work a half hour a day on my hands and then a half hour a day on this and 45 minutes on this. And I'm like, you have 19 things that you're going to work on every single day. Like you're going to keep that up for four days and then you're going to stop. So how do you suggest that people find that focus and just focus on the things that are, that are important and not sort of waste their time or try to overwhelm themselves with too much stuff? Well, I think it, well, like things like the hands, like I spend 45 minutes a day on the hands just, just for the hands because that's universal, right? right? No matter what you do, you might not need as much dexterity for some styles as others, but you're going to need to have your hands be loose and good to do anything, right? Yep. So working on your hands is one thing, but I know what you mean. I used to do that. I'm going to spend 20 minutes on Afro-Cuban. I'm going to spend 20 minutes on hip hop. I mean, you know, ultimately what happened with me, I didn't overthink it. Whatever my work called for mm-hmm. determined what I worked on. And a lot of it is funk and funk and breakbeat stuff. Makes like sense. I get and then and then playing in a rock band. Right. So what does that mean? Okay, jazz swing I'll work on because the swing, you know, when it comes to hip hop beats, they can be straight, slightly swung, way swung, like Jay Dilla twelve eight, Daru Jones kind of swung. Like so working on feel is universal because, you know, in hip hop or for funk or breakbeats, funk is so widely varying with the swing itself, it's always going to come in handy. Yeah. Okay. Like playing in a rock band, you know, um, consistent backbeat and good time, that doesn't go out of fashion either. So mm-hmm. you work on that. And then I have stuff I like to nerd out to, like triplet things and those little Mitch Mitchell things. Like I use that for my own band. So I use that. Right. But like I really don't. Every time in practice, when I try to reach for a wild, linear, four-bar, linear, crazy fill, it throws the whole band off anyway. Right. Even if I pull it, even if I pull it off, the guitar player is like, "What the?" F-? Yeah. <laughs> like my partner is like, "What did you just? Why did you what try was to that do that?" For? Yeah. Right, and I didn't mess it up. Like I did it on beat, but it like it threw them off, and I'm like, I started realizing like, yeah, I felt great when I spent six hours on this crazy ass gospel film, but then <laughs> to throw I'm it in gonna, here for no reason <laughs> to throw it in here for no reason. So it's like, you know, this, the building blocks for that fill are important, linear playing, spacing time, using, you know, vocabulary where you put what you, what voices of the drum you hit, the building blocks are important, but it's not going to be used in a practical setting. Right. So that, that I'll work on that fill to work on my facility, but I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole of fills like that. Yeah. I'll just work on four way, four way linear stuff, you know, and then I'll just develop like, for instance, like I watch a lot of videos and like guys who have a lot of chops will post videos of them playing these crazy linear patterns, you know, at like fast tempos. And I'm listening to that. And I'm like, nothing in my wheelhouse that's even remotely close is going to sound anything like that. Mm-hmm. But what I will do is when they're showing you how to work it up to speed and they're playing it at half speed, I'm like, he's playing it at half speed with the intention to play it faster. But if you listen at half speed, you you take the you, you don't do the floor tom, you make that a ghost note, you take three of these notes out, now I have a groove that works. Yeah. Because I took the vocabulary and the language of that, stripped away what I didn't need, slowed it down, changed the voicing, and put a swing on it when they played it straight. Now it's a whole nother whole beat that thing. was inspired. Like it was like, I think it was like uh, Juan Carlos Mendoza, like did like a crazy thing. And I was like, that's crazy, but I'll never use it. So I took it when he played it slow, woodshed that, then took notes away, swung it, 
you know, he hit a floor time. Okay, I'll put that here. Instead of doing it all on the hat, I'll bring the left down, do a couple of ghost notes, open the foot mm-hmm. in this part. Now you got a funk beat. Right, right, right. It was a, but it was inspired by like a fusion lick, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, I'll work on that stuff, but then it's always with the end result to apply it to what <laughs> is within my working. Because now sense. I, yeah. So now I'm getting calls to do a lot of, I'm getting, I've been fortunate to have work during the pandemic. So I'm always working. But when I do practice, I think back to what I struggle with during the session. Okay. I had to record this drum pass for this guy. It took me seven takes. I should have done it in one. Why couldn't I do it in one? That's what I work on. The yeah. reason why I couldn't do it in one, yeah. a lot of times it was the first beat. Like I would come in and I would blow the first beat and then I would get on. Like, what is it about the initial downbeat where I'm dragging or rushing? Boom, like I'll boom, like it's not even, even, even. And I kept having to do it over and over. Or I felt the need to edit it. Why is that a problem? So whatever caused the session to be one hour instead of 10 minutes, right. I'll spend a whole day on that. So the next time I do that, I can be more efficient in the session, turn it around fast. Yo, you're fast, you're efficient, you're this, you're professional. It leads to more work because mm-hmm. you turn around quicker and now you have room to do more work. Yep. You know, like, so how can I be more efficient with the work I'm getting? Where am I screwing up? Let's work on that. I have no jobs today. Let me spend a whole day working on what's giving me trouble and what I am using. Right. 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 Yeah. So, so that, that like, pre- like, ha- like your practice time, my practice time is valuable because life gets in the way. So I'm not going to be here trying to do like practice, like my stick twirling and, you know, like doing acrobatic, <laughs> doing acrobatic things and you playing know, upside down, all, playing upside down and like putting my foot up on this and that, and like trying to do things for Instagram views. Like I'm trying to work, I'm trying to make some music. Right. Like, that stuff is cool. I love it. I respect that those guys are amazing. But for me, it's not going to serve me. It's not going to it's not going to do anything for me. So I just try to be practical in what am I being hired for and how can I be the best at that I can be and how can I get more fluent in other things to survive if I get a call to play that style of music. Right. That makes right? sense, man. Yeah. That makes sense. So where you you mentioned Instagram, where's the best place for people to follow you to keep an eye on what you got going on projects all that kind of stuff the band uh, yeah my band is the do right so my instagram is for me and the band it's just jzone don't ig j-z-o-n-e-d-o-n-t-i-g uh twitter's the same but it's jzone don't tweet <laughs> so you, you see a theme here uh facebook is jzone 101 with no dashes or nothing just 101 and then um you know my, my website is govillaingo.com um, but if you put Jay Zone in the search, like my band camp and my website come up first and my band camps, the do rights and Jay Zone band camps are where all the music is. And, you know, the website has like, you know, playing uh, credits and mm-hmm. things I have going on. I mean, I have another breakbeat series coming out in March and then I have uh, my band, the do rights. We just released our fifth album. We're working on an EP and nice. I'm doing some studio stuff for, you know, Black Pumas and you know, different people, Mad Lib, just, you know, doing stuff for, you know, session work for different people. And um, so I have that going on. And um, I have a, all, my own interview series with the Give the Drummer Some on Red Bull Music Academy. That's on my website. So I interviewed a lot of these funk drummers that I talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, everybody from Questlove, you know, Greg Rico, Mike Clark, Bernard Purdy, you know, uh, David Garibaldi. Mount Rushmore Cats. 
No, right. Yeah. The guys who inspire me to do what I do. Yeah. You know, and um, so there's that. And, you know, I'm always going to be a fan first and a student first. And I just want to continue to just get better and learn everything I can. And, you know, I appreciate being on. I love talking drums and I appreciate being on, you know, a thing like this, a, a show like platform like this. So um, thanks for having me on. Of course, and, man. You know, you and yeah. I, you and I are uh, are cut from the same cloth in terms of approach and and music styles and and things like that so even when you and i talked you know before uh a couple or last week on the phone i'm like we you and i are this like we get it you know uh yeah we yeah, understand yeah. we speak the same language so that's, <laughs> same that's cool. language. So it was it was one it was amazing to have you on Two, uh george slupik if you're listening thank you brother for connecting Slop. us we love you the shuffle king yeah. yes a, greasy band he's a monster man he's a monster <laughs> and an amazing Total human killer. being too so amazing person too so yeah. slup thank you for that jay thank you for being on the podcast man i appreciate you and i appreciate course, what appreciate you do you. in the music world and continuing to to push good music uh you know what, what the, what's the saying there's two kinds of music good music and bad music good bad music and you keep That's pushing it, man. pushing the good music so <laughs> serve the music it's all about the music yeah. man and I appreciate it, it man. So thank you yeah. again, brother. Thank you, and man. I appreciate this. I will be talking to you soon. All right. All right, man. Take it easy, man. Peace. There you have it, Mr. Jay Mumford. And you can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 609. Also, I have two questions for you. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. One. We have a Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group, and there's like 3,500 members in there, and we don't use it that much. I mean, people post to it all the time, but it's just people posting videos of themselves playing and things like that, and I'd love to make it more of a community where where, where people who listen to the podcast are in there talking to each other and, and getting to know each other and things like that, and, and really creating like a supportive network in there. And so I'd love to hear from, well, first of all, join it if you haven't already, but I'd love to hear what you would like to see inside of that group and where you would find value. That would be really, uh, that would be really helpful to, to make that group better. And then the second thing is we have the mailing list where there's a lot of people on this mailing list. There's thousands and thousands of people. And I'm interested to know what you would like to see in the mailing list as well. So if you're not on it, you can sign up at drummersresource.com. And if you are on it, what else would you like to see besides the wrap-up email that we send out every Friday? So those are two questions that I have for you. And again, uh, if you want to check out the show notes to this, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 609. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.